Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Um, we are pleased for each and every one of you that are here with us this morning, and we welcome you. Um, before we go to our time in the Word, please uh, join me in asking God's blessing as we open it up today. Father, thank you now uh, for this opportunity uh, to gather together as your children uh, and look into your Word and to see what you have for us, uh, to see um, what pleases you and how we must respond. Uh, Father, I pray your blessing on our time this morning. I particularly pray, pray this morning for Rick Beach, and we pray for the situation with his toe, that, uh, that it would heal quickly and completely, and there would be uh, no further complications, Father. We pray that uh, through your power, this medication will be effective. And uh, we pray that uh, you would restore him quickly to us. We pray for the Swensons as they come back. Uh, we just thank you for their great testimony, and uh, we continue to pray that you will heal Sarah completely and that you will give her a long, long, productive life. And we now just, again, we praise you and thank you and ask for your blessing in our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are going to wrap up with the final installment on the book of James. Um, we appreciate uh, Chris Ward, who is helped with this and Dale Young and has contributed as well and we get to the very end and if you've been <clears throat> been in church over the last couple months you know that there's been a lot said about doing a checkup as far as our church is concerned we want to go to the wellness clinic and we want to check our vital signs and see how we are doing and and so we've talked a lot about that and <clears throat> just what that entailed and uh, as we look at this book of James, in a brief summary here that I'm going to give us, uh, we see that really it, is, it could be a textbook, if you will, as to what a person who has been redeemed uh, might look like, what their life might look like. And if we, if we carry that forward to understand that this, the church is not about a building, you know, it's not about Parkside, Per se, but the church is about people. It's about people who, through the ages, have been adopted into God's family by coming to faith in Jesus. When people come to the realization that they have rebelled against God, that as we all have, we have said in our lives many, many times, we have said, you know, I don't care. I know what God wants and what He expects from me, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. All of us have been in open rebellion, and the people who comprise the church are people that have come to that realization, and they understand that because of their rebellion, there must be some consequences. And they understand that that consequence is a separation from God for eternity. Our Bible says that even one sin will cause us eternal separation from him. And so they come to that realization and they come to that point where they trust in Jesus. They trust in Jesus to balance God's scales of justice. A lot of, much is said about God's love and his mercy and all those things are true. But God is a just God and he's a righteous God. And our open act of rebellion, mine, yours, it has consequences. 
And a person who is in the church, who has been adopted into God's family, understands that there is no way possible that that can be rectified. That penalty, those consequences can be made and set right on our own. And they understand that Jesus did just that when he came and suffered and died on the cross. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And at that point, we become part of his family. We're adopted into it, and that is what the church looks like. But if we want to do a checkup on on our church, you know, Parkside is just one tiny little segment of that, one tiny little segment of the whole church when you compare the those through the ages that have come to faith in Christ. We are just one tiny part. But if you want to look at how healthy this church is, we have to look at individuals. And so James's instruction to the individuals, we can carry that and extrapolate that out and evaluate how healthy we are. Well, in the book of James, starting in chapter 1, James said this, that those who are redeemed, those that are in God's family... Uh, should believe that God is a loving God, that He is sovereign, and that He is in control even in the most difficult of circumstances. James refers to those as trials, and he says that those trials can be used to uh, build us up and to strengthen our faith and mature us, and we rest in the hands of a loving God that we trust to know that He has what's best for us in mind, even through those difficult times. James says that those who are redeemed believe that God is ultimately the source of all wisdom and that we can have that wisdom if we merely ask for it. We must ask. He says, let him ask of God, and he'll give it to us freely. No conditions placed on that. Those who are redeemed believe that all good things come from God and that everything God gives us is good. And the greatest good thing that he gave us was salvation. That was a gift to us. It was not something we deserved. Salvation is not, we don't get it based on who we are or what we've done. We get salvation in spite of who we are and what we've done. This Bible says that we are saved through God's grace and through his mercy. It is a gift to us, and that great gift came from him. Those who are redeemed believe that we ought not to just hear the truth, but we ought to be doers of it as well. So James says we shouldn't deceive ourselves. You know, it's not enough just to be here week in and week out and listen. You know, hopefully you're going to get good instruction week in and week out. It's got to translate into some change in behavior. Otherwise, we're just kidding ourselves. We can sit here, we can be comfortable week in and week out and think everything is great. But unless you and I are changing, unless we're taking that instruction, it is of no use. You guys, you might sign up for a college class, for an evening class at, at, at the community college or something like that. You know what? You can go to every lecture, to every lab, to every workshop. And guess what? If you don't put it into play, it's of no use. And James says the same, as, same for us. We can be here all the time. We can listen. It doesn't change us. It's of no avail. We're deceiving ourselves into thinking everything is okay. Well, those who are redeemed, James says, should believe that we should never show partiality to anyone, play favorites in any way. That should not be characteristic of us. Perhaps the most 
famous thing, most well-known thing in the book of James is in James chapter 2 when he asks a rhetorical question. He says, what use is it, brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? He says, can that faith save him? The answer, of course, is no. We are not saved by good works, but if we are saved, we will have good works. It will be evidence of an indwelling faith. James says that those who are redeemed believe that our speech is a powerful tool. And as such, it should be used constructively to build people up. You can reference Ephesians 4.29 for that one as Paul says much the same thing. And he says, let no, no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it gives grace to those who hear Our speech is powerful. We must be careful as to how we use it. James says that truly redeemed people understand that true religion is pure, it's merciful, it's gentle, it's peaceful, and it's not hypocritical. Are you a hypocrite? I am. I think we all are. That should not be characteristic of us. And as we go on, as we get further down the road, it should be less and less common. That's not to be characteristic of our lives. It should be the anomaly, not the norm. James taught us, he says, that we should understand that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. C.J. Mahaney puts it another way, and he says this, he says that, Humility is our greatest friend, and pride is our greatest enemy. And we don't want to have God in opposition to us. We want Him on our side. We want, and we, underst- when we want, and we understand that we need grace, and we need to have humility. James says that we ought to be able to discern right from wrong and good from evil, but that we are not to serve as a judge and cast a verdict either in acquittal or condemnation on anyone is that is God's responsibility and his alone. We are to discern right from wrong and good from evil, but we are not to rent a verdict. James says, as we looked at the last time, or last installment in this, is that truly redeemed people ought to be people of prayer And that we see that God accomplishes great good through our prayers. And as we looked at that, the the text talked about Elijah. And what God accomplished through Elijah's prayer says that he prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain. We talked about that, about true climate change and climate control. And then Elijah prayed again, and it rained. And the point that was made, the most important point of that whole thing is not the rain or not the rain, but what was said about Elijah. And it said Elijah was a man just like us. So God doesn't honor Elijah's prayer, or we talked about Charles Spurgeon and George Mueller. God does not honor their prayers any more than he honors ours. The same God that listens and responds and hears our prayer is the same God that Elijah prayed to. And finally today, in our text today, James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, 
James is going to tell us that truly redeemed people ought to care enough about others that we will not stand idly by and watch them head down a path, a wrong path, a path that leads to nothing but pain and misery, that we should care enough about that that we will not stand idly by. James says in verse 19, James chapter 5, there's a copy in your uh, in your bulletin there. You can turn to your Bibles. James chapter 5, verses 19. James says this. He says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, there are two schools of thought as to who James is referring to in verse 19. He says, if any among you. There are some that would say that what James is talking about are those that are not really true believers, but there are what I would say are on the periphery. They may be people that we know that attend church quite regularly. They might, and I believe every church has, has people like this. They come regularly to the services and they're here and, and so on, but they will be very frank in telling you that they have not come to the point where they actually believe the gospel message. They don't do that. They don't, they don't believe that. Now, they may be here for any number of reasons, and we're glad that they are here. We're pleased about that. They may be here for a number of reasons. They may like uh, the, the company and the interaction with good people. They may feel welcome here. We hope they do. They may like the singing and the, and the music, and we hope they like that Two, they may be actually here because they like the preaching. Or, or they may be here because rather than get a prescription for, Lune- for uh, Lunesta from their doctor, they find that 30 to 40 minutes of preaching will do what no sleep aid could possibly accomplish. But we're glad they're here. But these are people that are on the periphery, what I say. They are not, at this point, they are not yet believers. And some people would say that James is talking about these, those, kind, those sort of people. And they kind of get off track. Well, I don't hold to that point of view because James says this, if someone strays from the truth. Well, how can you stray from something that you were never at? I just don't think that's possible. And so I think the group of people that James is talking about are those that have embraced the truth, but for some reason or another have got off track. And he says this. He says that that they stray from the truth, and if we bring them back, it's a great thing we can do. Now, as we look at this, one important point we have to make right at the outset is that by James giving us the instruction, it says if someone strays from the truth, he is making the point that the truth actually can be known. After all, how would we even recognize if someone had strayed from the truth if we didn't and couldn't know what the truth was? Now, we live in a society today where truth is very much blurred, and in many cases, our society in general does not believe there really is such a thing as objective truth. It's all subjective. It's kind of like, you know, if it works for you, that's good. You know, I'm happy for you. But just because it's true for you doesn't mean it's true for me. This is a very prevalent view in our society, one which I would take exception to. I want to make this very clear. 
that what I happen to believe, what my perspective on something is, does not change its reality. What I happen to think about something doesn't make one whit of difference about what is really true. It is true regardless, or it's false regardless of what I think about it, about it or what you think about it. It either is or it isn't. And that is a fact. Now, if you want to put it in spiritual terms, I can give you a real easy example of what I'm talking about. Okay, as far as God is concerned, there's only one of three possibilities. That's all there is. One of three. And that is, one, there is no God. Which would put you, if you believe this, would put you in the category of an atheist. Okay? You can believe there is one God, which would put you in the category of being a monotheist. Okay? Mono being one. Or you can believe in more than one God, which would put you in the category of being a polytheist, like uh, some Eastern religions, for example, believe in a plethora of gods. But there are only three possibilities, none, one, or more than one. That's all there is. Everyone falls into, into one of those three categories. Okay? Now, only one of those is right. Only one of those is true. And you may honestly believe that there is no God, and you're free to do that. This is a country that gives you freedom of expression and freedom of belief. You can honestly do that, but you can honestly be wrong. And you can be as sincere as you want to be. Man, I really believe that. I'm sincere. And our culture and our society would say, well, if it's true for you, it's true. Not so. We can know truth. And that's the first important thing. How are you going to recognize if somebody strays from the truth if you don't know it? We can know the truth. We do believe this is true. In fact, right here, it says that it's true. My Bible says that it is true. I believe it is true. And in fact... If even one portion of this Bible is not true, none of it is true. And there's no point in us even being here. We should just all go home and not, no point in coming back. You know, if we like each other's company, you know, maybe we can reserve the convention center or something. We can just kind of get together and, you know, get a meal catered or something like that. But if this is not true in its entirety, there is no point in us being here. I believe it is true. I believe the Bible is inerrant. Now, it doesn't mean that I understand everything that's in it. That's a process. But what is here is true. Whatever the Bible speaks about, it is correct and right. When it speaks about historical things, it is true and correct. When it speaks about scientific things, although this is not a science book, when it speaks about scientific things, it is true and correct. When it speaks about spiritual things, it is true and correct. It is always true. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about truth. I think the most important thing it says about it is, is that truth, the Bible says the truth is a person. In fact, Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth. Jesus defines himself as truth. Now, there are many people that will take the position, you know, that, and Jesus, yeah, is the right kind of guy. Had some really good teaching, yeah, good moral standards. You know, you know where the golden rule came from. 
That's right, came out of there, you know, this Jesus, he's right on. But Savior, God, and he's like, I, I'm not buying that. Good guy, but I'm not buying the other part of it. Well, he can't be a good guy if he's a liar. He says he's God. He says he's the only way. He gives us no choice. C.S. Lewis makes that very clear in his book, Mere Christianity. God, God doesn't give us that option of saying Jesus was a good man, but not who he said he was. A good man is not a liar. He either is what he says he is, or he is a, law, a fraud, an imposter, and a liar, and a lunatic. The Bible says that we can know the truth as a person. The Bible, typically, when it's talking about truth, particularly in the New Testament, really is talking about the gospel message, primarily. The Bible has a lot of other things to say about the truth. It said that we should love it. That is 2 Thessalonians 2.10. says that it should be obeyed. Galatians 5.7 and many, many other places. said it must be stated, that truth, that gospel message must be stated with simplicity and clarity. Now, if you leave today more confused than you came, I have not done my job. I should be able to state the truth clearly so that it's understandable. This is not something that is so complex that the average person cannot understand it. It does not take a person who has a Ph.D. in theology to explain the truth of the gospel or to be understood. And so I must state it with clarity and simplicity or anyone else that is up here in this position and we see that in 1 Corinthians 1.17. He says, not with cl- that should be proclaimed, the truth should not be proclaimed with cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ would be made void, it says. It's not about me. It's not about some slick presentation, some Madison Avenue type antics, if you will. I should be able to, or anyone up here should be able to proclaim the truth clearly and understandably, as should you day to day. Truth is simple and should be clearly stated. It must be spoken in love. That's Ephesians 4.15. It must be demonstrated by a lifestyle of love, and that's 1 John 3.19 and many, many other places. And the last thing I'm going to mention, there are much more it has to say about the truth, but the Bible tells us this, that is the truth liberates us, sets us free, and that's John 8.32. So, When James says, my brethren, if any of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, he's talking about a person, I believe, who has embraced the truth at some point in time in their life and for some reason or another has got off track. Now, the question is this, is how many of us have got off track? Yeah, Yeah. hands, all the hands should go up. We all get off track from time to time. We get, we get distracted. We've got one with both hands up. Uh, I, I, you know, that, that should be all. It happens. This is, not, this is not a smooth journey from beginning to end. You know, we take some detours. And that's not a smart thing to do. That's not a good thing to do. But it happens and we do it. And we get at that place where we get off track and we abandon the truth And instead of having the truth that frees us up, that liberates us, we instead get off track and we get enslaved by a lie. 
James says, verse 20, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way, that is, one who can interject the truth back into the life of someone who has gotten off track in such a way that they change, repent, if you want to use that term, you know, that word repent, you know, we've got our mindset as to just what that means, but it literally means to change your mind. And if we can interject the truth back in the life of someone who has gotten off track so that they change, they change their mind and get back on track, James says this, it's a wonderful thing that we are part of. He says, let him know that, he turn, that anyone who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Hmm. Great thing. We need it too. We need to be turned back to the truth from time to time. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way, and we've talked a lot about what our church ought to look like and ought to be concerned for the lost. If you remember, our memory verse from last month was Luke 19.10, which says this, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that should be a real concern of ours, winning those that are lost. But Warren Wiersbe says it's important that we seek to win the lost, but it is also important that we win the saved. And that's us. We need to get back on track at times. And if we can help them, James says it's a great thing to be used by God in that way. And he says, you know, in literal terms, if we are used by God to interject truth back into the person, into the life of a person who has gotten off track, we can literally save them from physical death. We talk about this from time to time when we read the passage at communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. And also there's a parallel passage in 1 John 5:16 that talks about that, that there is sin that actually leads to physical death, that point that God says, enough, I'm taking you home. So we can affect greatly the life of someone if we can interject truth back in it in that life so so that person changes in another way you know if we see one of our brothers or our sisters that gets off track in such a way that they get involved in drug abuse guess what we can literally be used to help save their life but James says this even for those that may not be saved from a literal physical death we can be saved from a morbid existence if you will a diseased state if you will, that when we get off track, that describes us. We're diseased, we're sick, we have a morbid existence. And this morbid, diseased existence that we have doesn't only affect us, but affects others around us. And it affects the church. You know, if you've gotten off track, it affects your family, for sure, those that are close to you and love you, but it also affects the rest of this body. You know, we live and exist as a unit. It's not you're off here and I'm off over in the other direction. What I do makes no difference to you. What I do affects you. And what you do affects the rest of us. We live and exist in a unit. What affects one affects all. It's an important thing to do if we can be used to interject truth back in a life that has gotten off the rat. Off, off on the wrong track and is in a life of 
pain and misery. Well, I'm going to take a drink. Well, now, if you and I had the technical ability where we could actually affect a medical cure upon someone who is, you know, was sick and ill and serious, you know, in dire straits, you know, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? That would be considered a great thing. That's merciful and caring and loving if we could do that. What would you say about someone that had the ability to do that and just ignored it, turned the other way? Is that something that's virtuous? No. That's negligent or malfeasance, as you want to say. You know, about a month ago or so, six weeks perhaps, they had a blood fair, for lack of a better term, down at the, uh, at the hospital. And you could go in and get your blood work done, get your cholesterol, get your PSA, get your thyroid, whatever, all these sort of things. It was a good thing because it was far cheaper than having to go if you just went down to the lab and get your blood work done. Now, when you went in there, you signed this little paper, you know, and what you wanted, and then it had a, a, a place there where you could send the results of this to your family physician, your regular doctor. And so a copy of your blood work would be sent to that, to that man. Now, supposing if my report was sent to my doctor, Dr. Reimer, fine doctor, by the way, and my cholesterol reads 350. It doesn't, by the way. But if it did, if it read 350, and Dr. Reimer looks at that and says, Oh, Bill, yeah, cholesterol 350. Not too good. In fact, that's pretty bad. And coupled with the fact the last time he was in here, his blood pressure was 190 over 110. That's not too good. But you know what? Every time I mention the idea of diet and exercise to Bill, he gets kind of testy. And he doesn't like it. And he didn't want to hear about the fact that he might have to change his eating habits and, and his exercise habits and everything like that. So you, so you know, and by the way, my blood pressure is not 190 over 110, by the way, either. But if Dr. Reimer takes that and he looks at it and says, you know, boy, I'm not, I don't know. I, I'm afraid that he's going to give me a bad time if I say anything about this. So I'm just going to ignore it. Maybe it will get better on its own. Well, if you know with those kind of numbers, you know exactly where someone would be headed, wouldn't you? Heart attack or stroke, possibly, I mean, possibly lights out, right? But to say nothing is what? Is that an act of charity or love or kindness? Then why is it that you and I, when we see one of our brothers or our sisters going down the wrong path, that we are so reluctant to say anything? Why is that? We have the cure, so to speak, and we say nothing. We take that slip of paper that says, oh, cholesterol 350, blood pressure 190 over 110. I'll just put it in the file, leave it for later. Maybe it'll get better on his own. Is that right? I think not. So what do we do? How do we turn someone back? to the truth, redirect their path from a path that's leading to nothing but pain and misery 
to one that affects all of us to a certain degree, to get them back on the right path, to the path that actually sets them free, that liberates them, the path of truth. I think the first thing we need to recognize is that the external behavior is not the main issue. When we see a brother or a sister headed down the wrong path, you know, there may be the situation we would hope it would not apply to any here, but there may be that situation where a brother or sister is involved in fornication or adultery, for example. That, that is a very serious thing. This is not something to be made light of, and I'm not trying to make light of it, but the fornication and the adultery is not the main issue. The main issue is what led up to it, and that's a diseased condition of the heart. What's wrong inside is the main issue, and we've got to get to the root of the problem, and that's right in here. You know, if what's inside is right, then what happens on the outside will be right as well. If there's trouble inside, there will be trouble on the outside as well. So we need to understand it's the heart that needs to be changed. It's attitudes that need to be changed, and that is something beyond our ability to do. That is something only God is able to do, and we must enlist His help. You know, we must feel empathy and compassion toward that person that is headed down the wrong track. We must be concerned for them. We must not hold them in contempt, but we have to remember what really is the truth, and that is this, is that particularly for those of us that came to faith as adults, we certainly were off track in a major way, and uh, sad to say, even after salvation, we've gotten off track in a major way. Some of us haven't we? And so that person that's standing in front of us, we cannot view them with contempt. We view them with love and compassion, and we care about them, understanding that they are no better and no worse than we ourselves. We understand that. We must approach them with an attitude of humility, not with arrogance. You know, we, we want to say in our own mind, because we very rarely say this, but we might think this, well, if they were just like me. Well, we might think that, but of course, that would be a bad thing. If, if everybody said, well, you're just like me, that's a problem. You know, if you want to say what they need to be like, you better point them to somebody else other than me. I'm going to let you down. You're going to let me down. Every one of you will let me down at some point in time. I won't meet your expectations, and you won't meet mine. There is only one that does, and that's Jesus. We need to point him to Jesus. Look at him. Don't look at me. Look at him. Let's approach them with humility, not an arrogant attitude. Now, on the other hand, if they're going to be helped, if they're going to get themselves back on track, they need to have an attitude of humility. (laughs) You know? They need to understand that change is needed. And they need to be humble enough to accept it. Remember that God... Resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And those people that are off track need to have a humble attitude as well. You know, I've done, in the past, I've done a little counseling. I'm not a counselor, but I've done a little counseling. And I'm not really, when I say good at it, I think I can do some basic things. I think 
the same things that you can do. There are certain truths that are in the Bible that I can point people to and say, this is what you need to do. And I'll be right about that. But, you know, it is it's very much a, a frustrating thing to witness the fact that often after giving good counsel to these people, nothing changes, nothing gets better. And you ask them, well, are you doing what I told you to do? They say, no, well, I tried that for a week, and it didn't really didn't work. No. They have to understand they need to change. You see, you and I, I don't like change. You don't like change either, probably. But guess what? If we're going to get from where we are right now to where we need to go, we're going to have to change. We have to understand that, that it can't, you know, what's the definition of insanity? It says doing the same thing the same way and expecting different results. And when people come to counseling, too many of them, they want to behave exactly the same way as they always have. They just want to have different results. They and you, I, we must change. We must be willing. We must to see that we have a need. We must see that the path that we're on leads to nothing but pain and misery, and we've got to get back on the right track. Got to get back to the truth, that which liberates us and sets us free. Well, the last thing I'm going to mention, there's much more, I'm sure, and people could, could speak uh, to great length about it, but the last thing I'm going to mention this morning is that we need to be praying for these people. Talked about that last time, how we must be fervently and diligently in prayer for them. It's not about getting your name on the church's prayer list and we pray for you one week or every day for three weeks or every day for two months it may be years and years and years elijah prayed fervently it wasn't a single prayer George Mueller prayed fervently it wasn't a single prayer often his prayer for something would last for you know, well over a year or two years, we must be prepared to pray diligently and fervently over the long haul. Now, I personally knew a man, great guy, wonderful man, and this man was off track. He was off track, in fact, all of his life. We're not talking about somebody who was ever, ever redeemed. He was off, off track his entire life. And he rejected the gospel his entire life. But he had a wife who was a believer. And she prayed earnestly and fervently for him. And she prayed for 35 years. And a week before cancer took him home, he came to faith in Christ. We need to pray that way as well. We need to be prepared for the long haul. Let's pray. Father, thank you now. For this message from your word, we thank you uh, that you've placed it here for us. Father, help us to, to love and care uh, for those who are your children, particularly. Those, of course, that are lost and are not yet yours, uh, we are concerned for them equally and, and in the same way. Uh, but for those of your children that have gotten off track, that head down the wrong path, Father, we pray that we will, in a way that honors you and is humble, and uh, caring and concerned about that person, 
that we interject that truth back into there so that you, we can be used in a great way to bring that person and save them from great, great, great trouble and great pain and agony. Father, we understand that as we turn from our ways, as we repent, there is great release and relief and healing that comes from that. And we ask for that today. Uh, we thank you for who you are and that you are a God who does forgive, a God that does uh, um, help and want to get us back in the right way into that truth that, that uh, liberates us uh, and sets us free. We just now thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.